Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. Being a member of the Florida legislature isn't for the faint of heart. The fine art of introducing and shepherding bills has been likened to making sausage, and the hyper-partisanship that is a current hallmark of the process doesn't help get things accomplished either. Today on Florida Matters, we're going to take a look at Tallahassee through two very different perspectives. Michelle Rayner is serving her first term in Tallahassee, having been elected to represent a district that stretches from South St. Petersburg across the bay to downtown Bradenton and Sarasota. The Democrat is the first openly queer black woman elected to the Florida legislature. First, we'll talk with Jeff Brandis of Pinellas County. He's being term limited from the state senate after serving two terms. He's been described as a maverick and has paid the price for repeatedly bucking the Republican leadership. We'll talk with him via Zoom on his take on how state politics has changed since he first took office, the future of the Republican Party, and what the future holds for him. Jeff Brandis, welcome to Florida Matters. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. You know, first off, you have described yourself as a libertarian with a capital L. Um, you supposedly came to that realization while serving in Iraq. Just what does that mean to you? Uh, to me, it means that I'm for less government. Uh, I'm for, you know, more individual freedom, more personal responsibility. All right. So how does your libertarian values jibe with, let's say, the abortion restricting restriction bill that seems to be sailing through the legislature right now? Yeah. So, so there are really libertarians on both sides of the abortion issue. Um, I'm somebody who believes that life begins at conception, and therefore I have a duty to protect that life. Uh, since it begins at conception, in my opinion. And I guess libertarian values, it, it says that government is the best that governs the least. Let's say preemption. Uh, the subject of preemption has come up frequently in the past several years. Lawmakers are basically kind of putting their thumb on local initiatives that range from like tree trimming to how many cruise ships can dock in ports. Does this go against your libertarian values? Not, not in, in certain aspects. I mean, the thing about preemption is you really have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. For example, when we were working for four years to bring Uber to the state of Florida, Uber was never going to work if every city or county was able to have their own municipal standards on taxi cabs and, and that type of service. So that's one that really made sense to preempt. Other things like sunscreen and other issues are really, you know, those are those are really much more of a of an individualized issue uh, that I think that the state should, you know, take a take a different tact on when it comes to preemption. Ultimately, you know, for the most part, I am all for letting cities and counties decide what they want their communities to look like. And that pretty much goes against the prevailing wisdom in the Republican Party right now, doesn't it? I would say that sometimes as the bills move through the legislature, that might be correct. But I think on the other hand, DeSantis has vetoed a number of preemption bills uh, because he, you know, I think at times has a more libertarian bent as well. So I think you can see, you can kind of see it playing out both ends. I think both sides are, the, the Republicans are conflicted as it relates to their stance on preemption. It really is their, you know, the legislature is sometimes over lobbied in certain issues and therefore will create a preemption for that issue. 
DeSantis has had the opinion that let, letting local governments kind of run run and do their own thing. Senator, you have a, uh, a reputation for bucking your party on many stands. Um, you know, you've you've come up against uh, bills that you believe are unconstitutional and not appropriate, such as the restrictions on voting by mail, the use of drop boxes for ballots, that sort of thing. Come across and said, you believe that we have just had the best election we've ever had in the history of Florida. And now they want to put through an election law that, frankly, every one of your supervisors of elections hated and did not support. So what's your what's your opinion on all that right now? Well, again, I mean, I think I'm not the only one who said we had the best election in Florida's history. The governor said it. A variety of different supervisors have said it. Uh, and it's one of those areas where I think ultimately the restrictions that, the, that we're talking about doing right now are actually going to come back and hurt Republicans. We have a number of voters who vote by mail and the more restrictions on voting by mail, I think it's ultimately going to deter people from, from exercising that or the ability to slip up and not fill out your ballot correctly or not turn it in correctly would create a number of ballots that are returned. And so I think you know, we need to be very careful as we're moving forward here. And I think a lot of the provisions that they've, they've implemented don't provide additional security, are not something that the supervisors support, and are frankly just a regulatory and administrative nightmare uh, that isn't going to provide additional security for the voters of the state of Florida. Right. Now, um, your, your votes against the party, which have really gone back to when you were first elected 10 years ago, uh, it has cost you uh, with uh, your standing in the party. You were removed as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, you're supposed to hold that position through the end of this year. Uh, Senate President Simpson removed you as that. Does that create some kind of a chilling effect, you believe, on lawmakers speaking their own mind and speaking up on issues they believe should be spoken up on? Look, I think everybody in, in this process understands that when they make uh, a decision that there's consequences for that decision. I have never been one who has has ever wanted the title. Um, I've always been about trying to get better public policy, and that's something that I've deeply cared about. I, I see it as a badge of honor to uh, be removed from a chairmanship because you took tough votes and, and stood, stood on what you believed in. I wish more of my colleagues actually could define their beliefs. Um, what I often find in Tallahassee is that, that many of my colleagues don't effectively have a true north. I don't mind if they have a stance on an issue. I just prefer that they be consistent on that stance. But what we see is them bouncing around like a pinball machine um, and taking different stances on different issues with with essentially no true north. Um, I, I think the one thing that I've tried to be throughout the time in the legislature is consistent on my views and consistent on my small government libertarian views, whether that's on adult use marijuana or on uh, a variety of other issues. But oftentimes what we see is the staff will tell you things are unconstitutional. If you listen to the supervisor elections, they'll tell you what the problems are with the legislation. And all the, my colleagues have to do is go seek out the, the experts in the topic and, and make a better decision. But there's so little of that that occurs right now up there. I'd like you to reflect on the state of the current legislative session and how things have changed in the Senate since you were first elected eight years ago? If you go back and watch the old Wendy's commercial, where's the, you know, the, the slogan was, where's the beef? Uh, and that's kind of how I feel about this legislative session. We've got really difficult issues out there. 
We have a property insurance crisis where rates are going up about 30% a year. Uh, we have a prison system that's in utter crisis where we can't attract or hire corrections officers. In fact, we have about 3,000 individuals in county jails. We have 200 in Pinellas sleeping on the floor that we can't send to prison. The prison would have to issue emergency releases. Uh, we, you know, we have an affordable housing crisis going on right now. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, these are some of the tough issues the legislature should be taking on. Unfortunately, that isn't what they're wrestling with this year. They're kind of tiptoeing around the edges of them, but they're not taking them on head on. Uh, and I, frank, I frankly, I feel like my one takeaway from this session was just, you know, where, where are the big issues? Where's the beef? Do you think maybe that these side roads into culture wars, some people call it, uh, maybe are a distraction from the bigger problems that the legislators should be tackling right now? Well, I mean, listen, it's an election year and people feel like they've got to do things that are, that kind of rally their base. Uh, I think that oftentimes is driving, at least during election years. But frankly, I think these other issues are just hard, complicated and difficult. You know, the prison system has been in crisis for years and now has entered collapse. The insurance industry in Florida has been in crisis for years. And frankly, the legislature often doesn't act, either party, until utter collapse begins to ensue. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a crisis and they have to take on the issue. So I think that's a little bit about what you're seeing this year. Uh, but frankly, you know, we shouldn't let it have to come to that. And Floridians are ultimately the ones who pay the price, whether it be in higher insurance premiums or a criminal justice system that isn't as focused on public safety and, frankly, has a, a prison system that, that warehouses and doesn't correct. Let's tackle a couple of those issues that you just mentioned. Um, you have come out in opposition to a bill that would repeal no-fault auto insurance. The Senate president has said that he wants to repeal the, the PIP, which requires drivers to carry $10,000 in personal injury protection insurance. You have described support for this bill as legislative malpractice. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. The governor vetoed this bill last year after they got an independent uh, study of this bill that says for the poorest Floridians, rates could go up between 40 and 70 percent. We already have about one in five drivers that drives without auto insurance in Florida. I believe this would make it one in four and would ultimately cause everybody's insurance rates to go up. I don't think anybody wants that. And frankly, the piece that's really legislative malpractice is they've had seven or eight months now to come up with their own independent analysis and put together bill language that actually lowers auto insurance rates. The piece that's legislative malpractice is the fact that they haven't gone out and get an independent study. If they don't like the current study that was done by the Office of Insurance Regulation, then check the couch cushions, find some money, and go buy, go, go get your own study done that justifies your position. But they don't want to do that because they know the current bill language, frankly, is going to raise rates for, for, for lots of people. And, and that's the, the, the piece that's really legislative malpractice. One other topic that has been near and dear to you is uh, prison reform. You've visited several jails, and uh, that's something many lawmakers have never done. You've come out in favor of eliminating most mandatory minimum sentencing, and there seems to be very little appetite for these kind of reforms in the legislature. I'd like to ask you where your fervor for prison reform comes from. Sure. I sat on a committee years ago. And I, uh, I was the first time I'd ever sat on a criminal justice committee, and I heard this story about a gentleman in South Florida who'd been, had acted out in his cell 
the corrections officers threw him in the shower, turned the shower all the way up and left him there. And when they came back, he was dead. Uh, and I remember kind of having this visceral reaction while I was sitting there. Like I was on a plane at 30,000 feet with an engine out upside down and no one at the controls and started to go out and visit prisons and started to dig into what was driving uh, the incarceration levels in Florida. And as I began to study the issue, I began to see what an outlier Florida was to the rest of the country that frankly had similar reduction in crime in their states, but yet Florida's sentencing structure was so much more harsh and frankly was so misapplied depending on the county that you lived in. While we're supposed to have this standard sentencing code, we have wildly different sentences depending on where your case is adjudicated in Florida. And so I began to study the issue and found out, you know, that Florida has no parole, effectively got rid of it uh, years ago. We have uh, an 85% rule for both our violent and nonviolent prisoners, uh, which most states don't have. Our reentry process is 50 bucks in a bus pass that nobody believes is the right process for reentry. And we effectively have no education and job training going on in our prison system. We have of our 80,000 inmates in Florida's correction system today, 40,000 of them can't read at the sixth grade level. And beyond that, most of the prison institutions have one or two teachers, but nobody really doing education. Inmate idleness is through the roof. 40% of our corrections officers will leave within the first year, 60% before their second anniversary. So essentially you don't have a department of corrections. You have a department of warehousing and they're basically held together with spit and chewing gum to, to keep this thing going. And when you couple that with the fact that 25% of all the people serving life sentences in America are serving those in Florida. And many of those are not for rape or for murder, but many of those are prior release reoffenders uh, who, who frankly got caught, got, got in trouble twice within three years and uh, were sentenced to life. I've read reports that you're starting to maybe formulate a think tank when, when you leave office. Any thoughts on that at all? Is that true what I've been reading? No, well, my big takeaway from Tallahassee is that most things you know, during legislative session, um, the perspective is that, that everything, my perspective is that everything is tactical and nothing is strategic, right? We aren't playing to these larger strategies. We aren't, we aren't focused on the goal of public safety. What, is, what gets us to a safer public? Um, so how do we get more strategic in our thinking, recognize where, we, where the goalpost is, and use best practices, worldwide experts to tackle some of these tough issues. And I think that's not happening in Tallahassee right now. It, it sounds like you may be thinking that you can accomplish more on the outside than you have been able to accomplish on the inside. <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating sometimes. I, I've always thought, you know, legislators should, should be able to hire a lobbyist uh, to advocate for our positions while we're inside. You know, that's what we do for our constituents is to advocate for our positions. You know, we can't be everywhere and, you know, we're, we're kind of limited. Uh, I only have a staff of three. I can only take on so many issues in a given year and really dive into them. But how do we advocate and, and kind of cast this bigger, bolder vision to, make, to move the state of Florida forward? Um, and that's been kind of one of the most frustrating things I've been involved in is just, just not being able to push these ideas as far as I'd like or have people understand the overall vision. And frankly, they don't have a vision in many of these areas. There's no vision for criminal justice. There's no vision for property insurance. We don't even have an economist on staff in, in affordable housing. Uh, 
and we know, do no basic research in any of these areas. So how do we build more basic research? How do we cast that bigger, bolder vision? And then how do we help build legislative champions who, to take that, those issues and move them forward? State Senator Jeff Brandis of Pinellas County is leaving office after 10 years. Thank you for sharing your vision with us on Florida Matters. My pleasure and look forward to joining you again. You're listening to Florida Matters. After this short break, we'll go to the other side of the legislative aisle and speak with Democrat Michelle Rayner. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. Next, we'll go from one of the veterans of the Senate to one of the newest members of the Florida House. Michelle Rayner was elected in 2020 to represent District 70. The majority-minority district includes South St. Petersburg and snakes across Tampa Bay to include downtown Bradenton and Sarasota. Rayner is a civil rights attorney and social justice advocate. Rayner is the first openly queer black woman elected to the Florida legislature. We speak to her via Zoom. Welcome to Florida Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So, Representative, uh, you know, you face an uphill battle in Tallahassee, not only as an LGBTQ woman, but as a Democrat, which might even be harder. So tell our listeners about your experiences so far halfway through the legislative session and if getting elected to this is all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is <laughs> really interesting to say the least. And I always kind of chuckle because it is difficult because I know myself and other Democratic colleagues of mine really came up there to solve real issues. You know, um, especially in my district, we have an affordable housing crisis. We also have, you know, a, a wage crisis. We have a lot of things happening and we are in Tallahassee playing culture wars. We are worrying about, you know, folks who are LGBTQ. We are worrying about, you know, making other people feel discomfort when we talk about the factual history of this nation. Things that no one has ever asked me when I have been out talking to constituents like, yes, you know, Rep. Rainer, please file this bill that says that we can't talk about race. Rep. Rainer, please file a bill that says kids can't talk about, you know, gender or sexuality in school. And so, and a lot of this is dog whistles. And it's very frustrating being in Tallahassee when we have the power to do really awesome things and really good things for people. And we choose not to do that. And we choose to focus our time fighting these fights, you know, uh, uh, you know, HB5, um, which is the abortion ban bill. Um, I've heard that bill twice in committee. I filed an amendment to strike the language from the abortion, the abortion ban language, and it is on the House floor. No one, and this is Republican, Democrats, MPAs, no one's like, yes, this is the bill that I think that we need to be focused on right now when our state is, you know, we really need to deal with some really, uh, really important issues here. Do you find it amazing, uh, you know, talking about the abortion bill that, uh, you know, a, an amendment was introduced to exempt for cases of rape or incest? Do you find it kind of amazing that that didn't even pass? I do, because, but then it is shocking because you have a state senator, you know, a Senator Stargell saying that she believes that victims of rape and incest may be using it for birth control. And it is unconscionable that we would even be having this conversation. The abortion ban bill is really clever. And I, and I, and I told the bill sponsor, this is clever. It's clever because it is in the middle of 
these two very important programs that we need when it comes to infant mortality and protecting mothers or protecting people that have children who um, are when they give birth. And then right in the middle is an abortion ban. So the amendment I filed, you know, struck that language. And my colleague said, well, I think that if you strike the language of uh, the abortion ban, that it goes against the intent of the bill. And I said, well, isn't the intent of the bill to protect people who are having children and to make sure that infants are able to have a healthy life and they don't die early? How is me striking the abortion language somewhere, somehow, some way, not consistent with the intent of the bill? I'm still waiting for my answer. How do you deal with this frustration personally on a personal level? And how do you talk to your constituents about this? I mean, what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I get that question all the time. And, you know, on, on personal level, it's just really self-care. It's really centering myself to about what matters and about why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. You know, I tell people that, you know, as an attorney, I make a pretty good living. I don't have to do this. This is not something that I am power hungry. Absolutely not. It is something that I really, truly believe that you know, our children are watching us, right? And it always kind of changes my mind about like, am I going to continue doing this? When a a child and even sometimes adults come up to me and say, listen, you know, I never thought that I would see someone like you in government. I never thought that I could ever have a possibility being a leader in whatever type of arena that they're in. And then, you know, to your other questions about when I talk to my constituents, I mean, I just keep it real. I tell them exactly what's going on. I tell them exactly what I'm doing. I tell them, you know, where where our fights and our battles are and how we can make progress. But I keep them informed. And I think that is what people appreciate, that they are being kept informed and that they're able to know what's going on. And that is what makes them encouraged, at least that someone is up there fighting. I think when there's kind of this like no no information, people are kind of like, I don't really know what's happening. And really Republican leadership in Tallahassee is banking on that people here don't know what's going on, that people on the ground, they're not aware, they're not informed so they can do their foolishness and without anyone batting an eye. All right, let's address some of the sources of frustration that you've had in Tallahassee here. Um, one of the issues that you have said is near and dear to you is criminal justice reform. With the Curtis Reeves movie theater shooting now going to trial, uh, Stand Your Ground is back in the news. You filed a bill to basically overturn Stand Your Ground, and that bill hasn't made it out of committee. Do you think it's got a chance? It doesn't, and I filed it last year, and it doesn't. Um, and, you know, here's the thing. Before I ever thought about running for office, I represented a family of a young man, uh, Marquise McLaughlin. Um, he was shot down and killed in Clearwater uh, in, in front of a convenience store, in front of his son, over a parking spot. And the stand your ground defense was used to preclude his killer from being arrested for 25 days. And I remember his father coming to me and saying, you know, Michelle, I knew about Trayvon Martin. I knew about stand your ground. I just never thought it would visit my house. And so it is something that is very personal to me. Not only is it a messaging bill, because I know it's not going to move, but also it's, it's a messaging bill in the sense of when we press that yes or no button, those are not arbitrary votes that we're taking. Those votes have an impact on someone's life, their livelihood, their finances. And so for me, it's very sad that we can't even have the academic conversation of why stand your ground should or should not be as our law. Because 
at common law, the law that we had before Stand Your Ground was fine. And we've seen the statistics of how harmful Stand Your Ground is. So it's very uh, frustrating to me that we can't even have the conversation, a real life conversation about how this particular policy impacts people, especially people of color. All right. One thing you do have in common with our previous guest, Republican Jeff Brandis, is a desire to repeal minimum mandatory sentences. Yes. Haven't had much luck there either, either have you? No. And, and, it's, and it's very hard. And I will tell you, the first lesson I ever got in a minimum mandatory uh, case was I was actually an intern. I was still in law school. I was interning at uh, the public defender's office in Duval County. And we we tried a case and it was a man that had possession of a firearm. The possession he had of the firearm was that his elderly neighbor was shooting up his gun on July 4th and he took it away from him and brought it into his house and just hadn't given it back to him. And for whatever reason, law enforcement came, they found the gun. And because he was an actual physical possession of the gun, that is why the jury found him guilty. They knew exactly why he did it. They knew that he wasn't, you know, trying to be nefarious, but he was an actual physical possession of the gun. And the judge looked at myself and he looked at the attorney at the time and said, if you could find me any case law, anything, even from other jurisdictions to say that I don't have to sentence this man to a minimum of three years in prison, please give it to me. And we could not find anything. So this man who had turned his life around, who was doing just a good deed protecting his neighbor and his neighborhood was sentenced to three years in prison because of the minimum mandatory. And the judge had no discretion. And the state attorney at that time refused to waive uh, the minimum mandatory. All right. Housing is another issue that's uh, you said is near and dear to you, especially with the high cost of, of rents and, and new homes right now. Uh, you said you're, you have been committed to passing legislation to um, ensure the Sadowski Trust Fund for low-income housing is not rated. And I believe this year it wasn't rated for the first time in memory, so that might be considered a, uh, a victory there. But do, do you see any other moves to address the, the problems of high cost of housing? So here's the thing. The Sadowski Fund wasn't rated this year, but what happened last year is that we decreased the level of the amount of money that was in the Sadowski Fund. So then that's problematic. And then the other part, I think that we have to um, understand, we have a $111 billion budget and not one bit of money is actually set aside to A, put more money into the Sadowski Fund or B, um, make sure that we can fund other affordable housing programs. We have a $15 billion reserve and we have not addressed the housing issue. And so I am not hopeful that uh, housing is going to be an issue. And in fact, um, in the governor's state of the state address that he did at, that he does at the beginning of every legislative session, at no point did he mention housing. And so once again, he knows that this is an issue. My colleagues and I have alerted him that this is an emergency, but we're not talking about it. One final question I'd like to ask you, um, you know, in, in the with the lack of legislative victories, do you think you just getting there, being elected as the first openly queer black woman in the legislature is a victory in itself? 
I definitely believe that it's a victory. And it, I will tell you, it was easier last year to pass legislation. I've got legislation passed and signed into law. I think this year, because it's an election year, but I think what I represent to your point is that, you know, the tide is changing, that people don't care about what you look like or who you love or how you identify. They want to know that you're going to fight for them and advocate for them and have actionable um, solutions for them. And that's what the people care about. Michelle Rayner was elected in 2020 to represent District 70 in the House of Representatives. Thank you very much for being on Florida Matters, and good luck with the rest of the legislative session. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's show. Our thanks to Jeff Brandis and Michelle Rayner. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Denora Prevost. You can catch up on our recent shows and the latest news from Florida Matters and WUSF via Twitter, Facebook, and our WUSF Instagram page, or by podcast so you can listen to us anytime you want. I'm Steve Newborn. We'll catch you next week on our next edition of Florida Matters.